Well, we're into our second week now in uh, Malachi uh, with the topic, Will Revival Come? And if you remember from last time, Malachi, uh, which means messenger, he was sent to preach to the returned exiles from Babylon and to challenge them and to remind them just how far they had gone away from God and also how they needed to get ready for a new work that God was planning to do among them. So, the book of Malachi has six basic uh, complaints or disputes or challenges that Malachi makes, that God makes through Malachi to the people of Israel. And and this week we're going to look at the first sort of substantive complaint, um, which is about the people's worship. I thought this was an interesting quote. Christian worship, says Karl Barth, famous German, I think, theologian, um, is the most momentous, the most urgent, the most glorious action that can take place in human life. Well, that's kind of a challenging statement, isn't it? Does our worship really look like that? Does the worship of our hearts look like that? Does the corporate worship that we've just joined in, can we really say that that describes it? Or is it more like the worship that we find in Malachi? As we heard in uh, the reading, their worship was second rate, it was second best. Above all, it was careless. And we'll see what particularly God has to say about that and why and how this applies to us today if we truly want to see God working amongst us individually and as a church. And we want to see that revival in our hearts and in our communities and in our town and in our nation. So, in the context of this careless worship, I thought it would be helpful just to remind ourselves again of some of the journey, as far as worship was concerned, that Israel had made over the past two centuries before Malachi. And if you've been following the daily readings, um, which I haven't got here, but the little leaflet um, with the daily readings, um, you'll have read of the final years of Judah, the southern uh, kingdom, uh, before they were carried off to Babylon, And you'll have read of the fantastic discovery of the book of the law by one of the last great kings, Josiah, and of his and the nation's repentance and that wonderful Passover festival that they held there in obedience to the law. And we read that the Passover in 2 Chronicles had not been observed like this in Israel since the days of the prophet Samuel. That's 400 years earlier. And none of the kings of Israel, that includes David, had ever celebrated such a Passover as did Josiah with the priests, the Levites, and all Judah and Israel who were there with the people of Jerusalem. So for 400 years there had not been such worship. And remember, this worship comes because Josiah discovers the book of the law in the temple. He reads it and he realizes just how far they have fallen from the standards that God set in terms of their worship. But sadly, it was a pretty temporary revival. Um, Josiah makes some interesting decisions about alliances uh, with Egypt, um, or against Egypt, I think, actually, sorry. And he's defeated in battle, and just over 20 years later, Judah is taken into captivity in Babylon and remains there for 70 years. And the temple is razed to the ground. There's nothing left. And worship in the sense of the sacrificial system that God put in place in in the first five books of the Bible, in Leviticus particularly, that worship for Israel ceases. But not completely, maybe, 
Because in Babylon, we read the great stories of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, all of whom refused to worship the gods of Babylon. And they were thrown into lion's dens and fiery furnaces and other creative forms of punishment and were rescued from them. And that led to the recognition of the power of God by both Nebuchadnezzar and later on uh, by Darius. So their worship, their refusal to bow down to the local gods in Babylon, so-called gods, was a witness and a testimony to God even in that strange land. And then, again, as we went through those readings, you'll have read perhaps of Cyrus, who was the king of the greatest kingdom in the world. This is the kingdom of Persia at the time of Ezra and the time of Cyrus. It's huge. Can you see? It goes up into China, Pakistan, Afghanistan, across into India, and all the way into Greece, Macedonia, the Balkans, um, down into Egypt. It's absolutely enormous. It's the largest kingdom that had ever been seen at that time. And Cyrus, who is king of all of that, he issues this proclamation. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Well, pretty much all the known kingdoms of the earth. And he's appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem. Any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. So what was the priority in Cyrus's heart, inspired by God? Isaiah tells us that, that God raised up Cyrus. Um, His priority and the priority of the people of Israel was to re-establish worship. So the exiles return under the leader of Zerubbabel, uh, the altar is set up, sacrificial worship starts again, and it was such a fantastic thing that the young people rejoiced and the old people wept because they remembered the former temple and they just rejoiced to see that worship re-established. The foundations of the temple are laid. There's a bit of a halt to the proceedings because there's local opposition. Uh, And then about 20 years later, the temple is finally completed with the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah, which if you haven't read yet, we'll be getting to, I think, this week, ringing in people's ears. These prophecies of God's blessing. Let's have a quick look at those. Haggai is saying this, the glory of this present house, the new temple, will be greater than the glory of the former house. And in this place I will grant peace. Zechariah says something. Many nations, that theme of the nations again that we've been thinking about, will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. And again, many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. So, worship is restored in the newly built temple. Blessing was surely going to come. We can see it in these verses. Israel would assume again its rightful place. The nations would stream into them. Perhaps it would be even greater than the time of Solomon. Well, let's move forward about 80 years now to the time of Malachi. That's the context. And sadly, the reality is pretty different. This is Israel under Solomon, fairly extensive kingdom stretching right up there into Syria and probably the borders of Iraq, down, uh, certainly down to the border of Egypt there. And this, if I can make it work, there we go, is what they're left with. That little uh, box on the left there corresponds to the box on the right, and the box on the right, Judea, is that little green bit, I don't know if you can see it there, 
with Bethel and Jerusalem. It's about 20 by 30 miles, inhabited by a population of perhaps 150,000. So what's that, sort of Ipswich and Felixstowe? It's kind of not really much bigger than that in terms of the geography or the population. So hardly those promises, really, that... that, um, were promised. This is Jerusalem just before the exile, a bustling, huge city. This is Jerusalem at the time of Malachi. The walls rebuilt, the temple partly rebuilt, but so much of the surrounding area in ruins. You can see just how much smaller Jerusalem is now. All of that bit on the left there, which was there um, at the time of Hezekiah and Josiah before the exile, um, that's all pretty much uh, in ruins, and all we've got is the small original city of David left. This is Solomon's temple. So, let me just go back one actually. Hang on a minute. Not quite there yet. So, in contrast to those glowing promises, the harsh reality is one of economic privation, prolonged drought, crop failure pestilence and no real evidence of God's presence. So compare that to now, if I can make it work, to Solomon's temple. What a fantastic building that was. If you read about it, the gold, the precious stones, the cedar, the the, the other precious woods that were there. And we read the dedication of uh, Solomon's temple. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offerings. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. And that, I guess, is what the people were expecting to happen again. But the reality is very different. This is an artist's impression, obviously. These are all artist's impressions, clearly, not photographs. Of, <laughs> of Just in case you're wondering. Um, of the temple at the time of Malachi. Now, you know, a bit of artistic license probably, but it's not quite as nice as the previous one, is it? It's smaller, it's inferior in every way, and spiritually also, it's inferior. Um, It seems to lack, if you look at the, the, the scriptures, any visible sign of the presence of God. So although God was alive and well and he was working, and we read of the story of Esther and how God saved the Jews in that, and lots of other great things with the uh, temple at least being rebuilt, his presence and his majesty and his glory seemed to be absent. So, with all of that context in mind, what does Malachi say to the people? Well, Margaret read it to us. Basically, what's happening is that the people are bringing lame, blind, sick, less than perfect animals, and the priests are accepting them, sacrificing them, possibly even encouraging the people to bring them. And God is so offended to this that he says, oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, as if you needed to say that, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. It's pretty clear. He was rather that there was no worship, that the temple had not been rebuilt, than that this sort of worship went on. So pretty harsh words to an order already perhaps despondent people. So what were the problems? What, what, what was the problem with the worship? And, and how can we apply that to us? As we see what happened there at the time of Malachi. Well, first of all, the worship that they were offering did not conform to the pattern laid down in God's word. And the Old Testament is incredibly clear about this. If you read Leviticus, which I'm sure is your, your daily reading, um, but some of it's, it's worth doing once at least, or, or possibly more than once. Um, 
again and again, the law is laid down about how the sacrifices should be built, should be brought. And, and for example, here, do not bring anything with a defect because it will not be accepted on your behalf. Um, and, and lots and lots of uh, rule. You must present a male without any defect from cattle, sheep, or goats in order that it may be accepted on your behalf. So it's very, very clear. But they were completely ignoring that. They were ignoring what God's word said. And that was the difference between that and the time of Solomon and the time of Josiah, where enormous care was taken in the preparation for worship. Whoops. More than that, their worship was basically worthless religious activity. And, and, and this, is, this is quite interesting. If we look here in verse 10, for example, it says that their offering... Well, I don't know if it is verse 10. Hang on a minute. It says that they're offering useless fires. They're offering worship in vain. And that, that's quite interesting. That little word um, there is the, a Hebrew word... Hinam. And there's a marvelous parallel if you look back in the Bible to 2 Samuel. So I can even find it, which is here somewhere. And you look in verse chapter 24, we read the story actually of the origins of the temple. There's a plague going through Egypt because David has decided to count the fighting men and take a census. And the prophet Gad goes to David and says, go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite. And so he comes to Araunah and he says, I want to buy your threshing floor so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. And Araunah, as you would, I think, to a king, king, says, you know, please have it and um, take my oxen and you can burn my threshing sledges and, you know, uh, whatever you want is absolutely fine. And David says, no. He says, I'm, I'm not going to do that. He says, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord, my God, burnt offerings that cost me nothing. And it's that same little Hebrew word, hanam. So basically what was happening is the... Israelites and the priests are offering sacrifices that cost them nothing. They're offering them the blind and the lame, stuff that otherwise would have been rejected. Um, David wouldn't do that, and we know that David was a man after God's own heart. And so that's the second thing that Malachi and God through Malachi criticizes the people for. Their worship was worthless. And you know, the worship of God that we do should put a value on him in the way that it's done. So we should take joy, I think, more than we do, I speaking to myself, in preparation and in time and in effort. Because the more joy that we take in that, as we prepare, it reflects the value that we place on God. And it's not right, is it, that any of us, whether we sit in the pew or we lead or whatever we're doing, that we should offer worship to God that costs us nothing. And then the third thing that we see from this passage is that their worship was half-hearted and weary. If you look a little bit further down, it says, and you say, what a burden, 
What weariness. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. Do we do that sometimes? I mean, I confess, I think I do. I think, I think I might rather be at home reading the Sunday paper than coming to church. I'm always afraid that if I did stay at home, read the Sunday paper, do that for a couple of weeks, I might like it rather too much. So probably best not to start. But, but sometimes we do come, don't we, half-hearted and weary. And that's what these guys were saying. What weariness. What a burden this is, doing this. Is it a burden to come to the great and living God? To have that privilege that we heard earlier of entering into the most holy place through the Lord Jesus? Well, sometimes it feels like it, and and we need to ask God to help us with that. And then their worship was also, I think, oriented a little bit around them, not God. You have to remember that the priests needed the sacrifices because that was their food. And and, and certainly I I, I forget that. And if you read Leviticus again and and, and those books of the Old Testament, you see that some of the sacrifices had to be completely burnt up. But a lot of them, the priests would then go away and eat them. And in fact, uh, many of the sacrifices, the people uh, would eat and join in, like the Passover, for example. And so I, I wonder, you know, we've seen already that Israel was not in a great state. And if you look forward into Malachi 3, Uh, you will see that um, he says, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit. So obviously that's what was happening. Um, I don't think there was a lot of economic prosperity. And so maybe they were thinking, the priests were thinking, well, if I don't um, get the blind and the crippled animals, I probably won't get anything at all. And the Israelites were thinking, well, um, I need to offer these things because I can't afford to offer the decent animals because I need to trade with those or I need to you know, um, eat them myself or whatever it might be. And, and, and so their worship was becoming very self-centered. And we need to be really careful about that, I think, don't we? That, that you know, sometimes we come here for what we can get and not for what we can give. And I think the priests were doing that. We need to be careful that we don't do that. And then the final thing, I think, was that worship took God for granted. And this, this is one of the worst things in, a, in many ways. Look, If you look in the passage, there's quite a few questions um, which Margaret read to us. In verse 2, for example, the Lord says, I have loved you. But you asked, how have you loved us? And then a little bit further down, um, in verse 6, how have we shown contempt for your name? Verse 7, how have we defiled you? Isn't there an insolence there? Isn't there a a carelessness? It's kind of a a whatever, a kind of an attitude. Uh, And and it it, it seems, seems terrible to me. They don't even think there's a problem. They just don't see it. They take God for granted. He's always going to be there. Um, we'll just park him to one side. We'll give him a little bit of something. At least we're giving him something. What's the problem? We need to be very careful about that. So these, these five, six, um, five things here. Do we recognize some of those in our own lives? I think, I think I do. Do we approach worship as something primarily for us? We didn't get much out of it this morning. Do we come to corporate worship sometimes feeling weary, wishing we could be somewhere else? Do we give our best or do we give God what is left over and take him for granted? So have we lost the vision of what our worship could be like, why we do it at all, and is our worship sometimes more like Malachi's than it is Solomon's or Josiah's? And the question that leaves us with, I think, is how can we recover a vision of worship where we see the greatness 
and the glory of God in a real, real and tangible way. Perhaps you're asking, why does that even matter? So, we move on to the second part, which is the origins of careless worship. Why was their worship like that? Well, we've, we've seen a little bit of perhaps of their disappointment. Maybe that's some of it. But John Piper says this, the origin of careless worship is a failure to see and to feel the greatness of God. And I think that's, that's a fantastic definition. He says, see and feel. So it's not just about giving intellectual assent to the greatness of God. We at least to some extent need to see the greatness of God with the eyes of our heart and feel it with our emotions. And the Israelites had lost that. They were going through the motions. Any sense of God's presence or his greatness had gone probably years ago. So how do we, how do we see that from this passage? Where does this passage say that? Well, the first place we see it I think, is um, right at the beginning where we see that they missed seeing and feeling the greatness of God by his love in choosing them. And we skirted over this a little bit last week, but if you look in verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you asked, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And there's a lot we could say to unpack that. It's not the easiest passage in the world. Uh, Paul himself spends three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11, unpacking pretty much that text. Uh, So we won't do that uh, today. But really what we're seeing here is the greatness of God in his love in choosing choosing, uh, the Israelites above all peoples. Do you remember what it says in... Um, I forget where now, but one of the first five books of the Bible, he says, the Lord did not set his love upon you because you were the greatest, because you were the least of all nations. But it was because the Lord loved you. So think about that. The Lord set his love upon you because he loved you. No other reason. And you remember last time I was preaching, we were looking at Ephesians 2. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, By grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So if we're saved and we're in the Lord Jesus today, then we know that God chose us before the foundation of the world. I think we sang that in in Our God is a Great Big God, didn't we? He chose us and he loved us before the world began. How could that not inspire worship? I mentioned those chapters in Romans. And it, it's very instructive to see that Romans looks at this, uh, so that Paul looks at this verse and he looks at how it applies particularly to Israel. And then at the end, he just has to break out into this hymn of praise. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. For Paul, this sense of God choosing us and loving us, not because we deserved anything, inspired him to worship. And you know what comes next straight after that hymn of praise? The next verse is the famous one that you all know. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, therefore, because of this, 
I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. The more we understand the love of God for us in choosing us despite who we are, the more we'll want to worship him. This is what Malachi was saying. And then the second thing that we see is that they missed seeing and feeling the greatness of God as their father. And we see this in verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due to me? If I am a master, where is the respect due to me? And in seeing the love of God, we also need to understand that we need to love and respect and honor God as our father. And it's helpful to remember that the father who's portrayed in the parable of the prodigal son as running to meet us, as choosing us in love, is the same father who the writer to the Hebrews says we should worship acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's remember those two aspects of God. It's really important, or else we're in danger, aren't we, of becoming almighty with the Almighty. It's fantastic that we can know God in that intimate way, but we also need to understand that he's far greater than we can imagine. Then the third thing uh, that they missed was they missed seeing and feeling the greatness of God as the Lord of hosts. This is, this is quite interesting. Um, I was tempted to put a pie chart up. I mean, you know how much I like pie charts, but, but I, I, anyway, I haven't done that. But it turns out that Malachi uses the term Lord of hosts in this book, which is what, three pages in here? Um, 24 times out of the 300 times that it's used in the whole of the Old Testament. And interestingly, the other two books where that term is used extensively are Haggai and Zechariah that we quoted from earlier, similar, coming from a similar time frame. Why is that? Well, do you remember how small Israel was? How great it had been under Solomon and how small it was now? Um, In fact, Israel was so small that it didn't have an army at all. And even before the exile, uh, the Assyrian king Sennacherib could mockingly challenge King Hezekiah with the offer of a gift of 2,000 horses if Hezekiah could find enough soldiers to ride them. So isn't this God saying, look, I have all of the armies of heaven at my disposal. I am the Lord of hosts. It reminds me of, uh, do you remember Elisha? prayed for his servant when they were surrounded by the Syrian armies. O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Or again in the New Testament, Jesus says, do you not think that I can, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? We need to remember how great God is as the Lord of hosts. He has all of the armies of heaven at his disposal. But they missed it. And the final thing they missed was seeing the greatness of God as the the king of the nations. Um, This is, again, very interesting. If we look at uh, verse 10 and 11. Verse 10, we read this, didn't we? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors. And then verse 11, my name will be great among the nations. Now, I'm told, because I don't read Hebrew, one day... When I'm retired, I'll have a go. But it's fantastically difficult. You can't recognize any of the letters and it all goes backwards. So I have to rely on other people. And um, 
apparently in the Hebrew, which isn't in this translation, verse 11 starts with the word for. In other words, it's, he's saying in verse 10, shut the temple doors. The worship is not acceptable because my name will be great among the nations. That's why that verse is there. He's explaining why the worship is so unacceptable. And it's unacceptable because God is king of the nations. And, and, you know, they should have known that. They should have remembered the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah, which talked about the nations, and, and, and Isaiah and Ezekiel, it talks about the nations streaming into, into the temple. And what a comfort as well that would have been to them if they'd have remembered it. There, were, there they are, what was it, 20 by 30 miles in the middle of this huge Persian empire. And yet the god that they worshipped was the king of the nations. And I was thinking about this, and I asked a friend of mine who um, teaches at uh, Hamford Hall School just how many nations we've got around here. Now, Simon tells me at Elim, he reckons there are 40 different nationalities at the International Church just up the road. At Hamford Hall School, apparently there are 15 nationalities represented. Indian, Portuguese, Polish, Bengali, Kurdish, Iranian, Afghani, Lithuanian, Russian, Filipino, Afro-Caribbean, Serbian, Croatian, Albanian, Chinese, Vietnamese. I didn't count whether that was 15. 22 different languages. About seven different Indian languages. The nations are here. And if we recognize the greatness of God and recognize that he's king of the nations, we have the nations on our doorstep to to witness to and to be a, a testimony to. So, I think we need to draw to a close. I think the key message, and we'll just, oh, I talked about these. Go away. Hang on a minute. So, I think the key message from Malachi is this message that we've heard that we need in our worship to see and to feel the greatness of God. The greatness of God in his love in choosing us. The greatness of God as our Father, deserving of our respect, that we would serve him with reverent fear and in awe. The greatness of God as the Lord of hosts, commanding all of the armies, having all of the power and majesty. And the greatness of God as the King of the nations. We know that one day every knee will bow And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And and do you not think that if we get that sense of how great God is as we come to worship, that we want to prepare adequately in our hearts, that it would be a joy to spend the time that we need to spend uh, preparing the music or uh, doing the communion or doing the coffee or leading the children or... Cleaning the church or doing the flowers or whatever it might be. If we could see the fact that we're doing that because of the greatness of God and that God, through Jesus, allows us to come and worship him. I I think it, it would definitely help us to renew our worship. And we would be able to join with Paul, I think, in those words again. The depths, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths Beyond tracing out, who has known the mind of the Lord? or Who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, 
I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and we praise you that we worship a God who is worthy of all of the worship that we can give. The gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. And we thank you for that immense privilege to be able to do that. And Lord, we are sorry that sometimes when we come to worship, despite our best efforts sometimes, we are careless. And we don't give you our best. And Lord, we would ask today that you would give us a renewed sense of your greatness and your majesty and your holiness and your love in choosing us and in sending the Lord Jesus for us. And Father, we're sorry sometimes for our worship, for the thing that we have made it. And we want to come back to the heart of worship, which is about seeing your glory and your majesty and seeing that it's all about you. Let's just sit and and sing that song, coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you, Lord Jesus.